Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. Infancy is commonly recognized as a critical time period for microbiota to colonize the gut. And when it comes to adults, it seems there's a new probiotic launched every day. But what about those in the middle? What do we know about the gut microbiomes of children? Last year, Seed Health came out with a symbiotic for children that is backed by a ton of research. Raja Deer is the co-founder of Seed, which is a venture-backed microbiome company pioneering the application of bacteria for both human and planetary health. He joins us now. Hi, Raja, and welcome to the NutraCast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. So before we get into the pediatric research, why don't you tell me a little bit about your work in the microbiome space and how it led you to co-found Seed? Sure. So uh, I first started to read about the microbiome in 2006, actually. Um, the first real study in our in our field was when bacteria were transplanted between uh, genetically identical mice, one being obese, one being lean. And when you transplanted their gut bacteria, their physical phenotype changed. And it's been a, a, a fascination of mine ever since. And so the first kind of pivotal uh, moment and, and my involvement that led to the creation of Seed was when I had found and, and began to collaborate with a, a group at Harvard Medical School, which was actually looking at intestinal response to different compounds. They were using very simple models that actually isolated which genes are being expressed in response to different compounds and uh, actually found that bacteria were giving really strong signals. So here, these are things like that could be just probiotics, but they're involved in signaling on on the whole, on the whole range of uh, of genes involved in immune response and um, inflammation versus anti-inflammation and oxidative stress and regulating response to oxidative stress and different gases that may be present in the intestines. And so uh, I became very curious as to how we could screen different organisms and kind of evolve uh, what probiotics, which was a kind of a very popular field, but had very little, I think, concrete mechanistic science behind it. That was kind of the start and actually was the original screening platform for DSO-1. So PDSO-8, which we're here to talk about today, is our is our second product after DSO-1. And uh, it's, uh, it's a symbiotic, which means that it's a synergistic symbiotic, which means that it has uh, strains of bacteria in, a, in addition to a prebiotic, which is preferential to, to, to the probiotic, to the organisms for their growth. This was assessed and it was also published. And uh, the results of the clinical study that you referenced in our, in our introduction were the results of our placebo-controlled, randomized, and double-blinded uh, clinical study on, on PDSO8 in a, in a pediatric population. So there was about 60 kids that were randomized to go into a placebo or into an intervention, and they were tracked over 12 weeks. And the primary endpoint was uh, whether we could improve the rates of frequency of weekly bowel movements in these children compared to the placebo. And the, the results were, were, were significant. So there was about uh, five to one more response in uh, the intervention group compared to placebo in, 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 in children who had less than four weekly bowel movements per week and also in children that had less than five weekly bowel movements per week, which is really significant. I mean, if you think that maybe the statistics most recently are that about one in three children uh, suffer from intermittent constipation. Uh, that's that's a very large population. Actually, one of the reviewers of the clinical study at the Nature Journal Pediatric Research stated that uh, this is a very uh, ele elegant work 
which perhaps could address the largest complaint that uh, pediatricians face in their day-to-day -day practice, which is pediatric constipation. So we're very encouraged by the number of people that could be uh, impacted or, or whose health could be improved by this. And so another thing that we did was we actually, contrary to many quote probiotic studies, is we actually did very deep microbiome sequencing to, to understand what happened in the gut of different children after taking this treatment compared to placebo and, and, and saw some really striking things like um, enrichment of virtually of, of every species of, of bacteria, which was found in the probiotic group, as well as some other microbiological changes, which uh, signal kind of uh, persistence of the probiotic and by likely a, a very strong biological effect. And so uh, the last thing that we did was actually we were able to uh, discover some very new biomarkers on what might make somebody responsive versus non-responsive to these, these types of treatments. So just to go back to the first point, of the response rate that we had was actually online with what you might see with laxatives or other kind of OTC therapeutics uh, or OTC type products for pediatric constipation. So I, we think that's really interesting, right? It's like typically you think uh, that an OTC product is something which has very high level of clinical success, but here we found that actually our symbiotic is, is, is rivaling those success rates uh, that you would find in those OTC types of, type of products. And actually, we were able to find that if uh, what, what types of children would be most responsive versus non-responsive to this that was, was also published in the paper. And so um, all in, I think that the microbiome analysis, as well as the combination of, of, of really relevant functional endpoints made this study super interesting and additive to the field and um, very relevant and, uh, and interesting to parents. Yeah. I'm sure it's very interesting to parents considering how common childhood constipation is for all the parents out there. I'm sure we're all thinking about the times when we just were waiting for a bowel movement from our baby and it finally came and, you know, celebrating and things like that. At least that's what came to my mind uh, when my kids were babies. I hope they don't listen to this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's such a problem. It's so common. Um, and so what's the biggest difference between this symbiotic and other ones that are out there? So first, it's the only uh, product of its type that has the prebiotic load that we have. So there's 6.3 grams um, of a mixed chain, like a broad spectrum prebiotic that covers various chain lengths. In, in, in prebiotics uh, or in, in, in carbohydrate biochemistry, you, you look at the number of degrees of polymerization. And so here you have DP3, DP4, DP5, 6, 7. And so you have a very kind of a menu of oligosaccharides that the gut microbiome can respond to. And also the dose is something which is a very clinically relevant dosages. So tip, so anything in a capsule or anything that's kind of in a scooper, typically you find those things to even be under one gram, which remains uh, unproven. And certainly um, uh, what we know about carbohydrate biochemistry and diet nutrition today is, is probably uh, unlikely to itself induce a clinically relevant or a microbiologically relevant impact into the gut microbiome. So that's first. Second is that it has many, many different strains, including different strains that are from the same species. And so um, it's much broader in terms of the strain characterization in the infant and especially the infant and pediatric products. Maybe you'll find one or two strains that might have a good clinical study from a manufacturer, but you rarely find that there's a consortia or a robust multi-strain formulation, which has various different uh, mechanisms of action. And so some of these strains were studied to signal into the skin for children that might have atopic dermatitis or, or have eczema. Some of these strains had previous literature to show that they're protective against the rate of upper respiratory tract infections going into cold and flu season. 
And yet even more of these strains were found to be involved in uh, pediatric metabolism and glucose response and you know even other biomarkers that are, are, are uh, representative of a healthy uh, metabolic response. And so it's kind of this broad spectrum combination of strains, which we believe are going to be efficacious across more than just you know, maybe one thing. And, and there's a, a, not really much clarity in kind of existing products today on what are the strains or what exactly are they intended to do or why would a kid benefit and also not really as, as robust as they're called gold standard trials where it's, it's randomized, it's double-blinded, it's placebo-controlled, and then it's published into a peer-reviewed study. So all those things really make this uh, product attractive for somebody who might have a, ch- a child that has certainly low weekly bowel movements or has intermittent or uh, variable digestive and gastrointestinal system response, but also maybe for a parent who just wants to give their kid the best chance at preventive or or proactive uh, health, because a lot of these things are found to really support homeostasis in addition to working on something super specific, like the number of bowel movements the kid that the kid would have. Mm-hmm. And the strains were clinically studied in a pediatric population, as you mentioned. How important was it for you to formulate with something that was studied in kids? It's quite important, I think, at least in terms of uh, the regulatory environment, data that's generated on on adults can't really be transferred to kids and vice versa. And so it's very important. I mean, kids have a very different gut microbiome. They have very different dietary patterns. They have very different levels of development of their immune system. I think that uh, it's it is very important to to have data on the population that you're that you're creating the product for. And I hope to see that type of thinking replicated for other products that may exist onto the market. So we hear a lot about, you know, the first 100 days of life, and then we don't hear as much about kids. So what do we know about the microbiomes of children and what do we not know? Yeah, well, I I would extend out the first 100 days of life to really the first uh, two and a half to three years. I think that is what's in immunology considered to be the window of immune development. It's the period of time where predisposition to what's called uh, conditions of the atopic march, they really emerge. So like allergies, sensitivities, autoimmunities, all of those conditions really emerge as the immune system is getting trained on what it should be responsive to versus what it should be tolerant to. So that's that's a very specialized period of time. And actually, I would say that that's, that's outside of the scope of this product. That's really infancy uh, and going through the period of immune development and uh, actually, we have other research programs that are focused on that window of development, but that's not what PDSO8 is really for. So after that period of time, your microbiome reaches some what's called steady state. So that's really when you have what's considered to be the bulk of your gut microbiome from a diversity and biomass standpoint. That's really when it when it's reached. And so from three onwards and from three into kind of post-adolescence, post-puberty is kind of another really defined period of time. And so this is when dietary patterns develop. Children tend to have the most exposure to the uh, external environment, whether they're, that's, that's nature and dirt as it used to be more commonly or, or now more commonly the, the built environment. That's typically when you start to see the biggest aggressivity, I guess to the microbiome. So, you know, maybe a child gets sick and they have to take a course of antibiotics or they have an infection or you really begin to now challenge the microbiome as well. And so this this is this is something we shouldn't gloss over. I mean, some studies have shown that even two years after an, a single course of antibiotics that bifidobacterium, for example, don't uh, rebound or don't recover in 
the abundances that they were before and and we don't know when if and when that that uh, recovery ever becomes complete so there's a lot of i think great things about living in a modern world but there's also a lot of exposure to things like cleaning agents and and to microbials that uh, definitely alter the microbiome in a way that we've never really seen before and so it really is no one thing but it's a combination of a lot of those things that make it a, an interesting period of time um, i would also add that children at least in the united states the statistics on the, the the amount of children that consistently eat a diversity of fresh fruits and vegetables or or foods that i should say have the absence of preservatives or have having been processed in some capacity is 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 quite low and there's also a lot of uh, of consumption of known disruptors to the microbiome like like uh, artificial sweeteners or high high sugar diets uh, emulsifiers uh, we're finding are also are, are also problematic as well as uh, you know coloring agents and other other uh, synthetic and approved uh, ingredients that are used in the food industry so needless to say there's there's quite a lot of exposure i believe that we're seeing the consequences and the effects of for the first time um, some version of what I'm saying has been restated and been retold in in alternative or more natural food communities, but I think in a, in a slightly different way. So I'm not intending to to create fear, uh, but rather I'm saying that when you actually look at each of the compounds, even things like approved insecticides or processing agents and fertilizers that are found even in the types of farming that we do that power the food supply, it's just very different. And there, there is a toxicity threshold and there is an effect on the microbiome, which has now been, been very well characterized that uh, we can't say to the full extent. Now, am I saying that PDSO8 necessarily is going to protect against all of that? No, I think it's a combination of many different things, but your question specifically on what could be disrupting or what could be creating an, an environment or what, what really characterizes the pediatric microbiome definitely takes all of these things into account. Definitely. And then, you know, one thing that fascinates me is the gut-brain axis. And we know that childhood is regarded as a critical phase for behavioral problems. Uh, can we tie children's gut bacteria to their behavior? Is this something that SEED has studied? The gut-brain axis is, is, of course, an emerging field. I think it's it's been studied a lot more in the context of uh, adult populations. So, for example, like Using the the gut microbiome, we can with pretty fair, pretty strong accuracy, especially if you combine some some blood and, and urinary metabolites, uh, predict something like major depressive disorder, for example. And so that's very interesting and that's very concrete. I don't believe for behavioral disorders that's necessarily been done at a pediatric level. I, I say that with a caveat. So I know that in like um, autism spectrum disorder, you get very clear signals from the microbiome, but I don't think that, I think it's too early to presume or to say that uh, microbiome modulation will definitively uh, prevent the risk or treat some of uh, uh, behavioral conditions that might, observe, might, might emerge into children. Yeah, there's so much to learn. We're just scratching the surface. Uh, microbiome health is definitely gaining popularity among all ages. What do you predict for the future of microbiome research and health? Well, uh, that's a that's a really big question. Um, <laughs> I you know I think I think what we have uh, maybe you've heard of the parable of uh, of uh, five people that are all describing an elephant, but they're holding on to different parts of it and 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 they're blind, and so they're trying to think to describe really what it is. But it's if you don't take it all together, you you have no clue. You're describing 
just something imperfectly from from what you're able to measure, what what you are able to feel. I think the microbiome is very much like that today. I think that we're it's really problematic. You can't just speak about like the microbiome because how it's sampled, how it's tested, how the sequencing is conducted, how deep, how many reads you get, how it's assembled, how it's interpreted, uh, what reference genomes that your reads are mapped to. I mean, that's a bit technical, but the point is, is that there really is like a lot of different data floating around that hasn't really been integrated into one another to give you a very robust and very well-powered look at what the microbiome is and how it's relevant. And so I think that the field of microbiome, I would say, really picked up about 10 years ago. I think from 2015 onwards, when people started to at least start to use mostly the same types of sequencing, maybe it was not the same depth or the same shallowness, but it was at least the same type, it started to become a little bit stronger. So we really are looking at about maybe five to 10 solid years of disconnected analysis in this field between academia and between industry. And uh, I really think that now the next five to 10 years are the years where most of the big insights that are uh, mostly transformative are going to be found. So what strains of bacteria definitively should an infant be exposed to? What is the consequence of, of breastfeeding versus not breastfeeding? What is the pediatric microbiome that's kind of, quote, healthy look like at various stages in the development process? So pre-adolescence and post-adolescence definitely marks or, or puberty marks a a pivotal turning point. And then uh, just what, as you go and progress through life, like are the hallmarks of a healthy microbiome? So some of the work that we're doing is also actually building like like aging clocks and actually building like clocks connecting the microbiome to all these different organ systems. So like the liver or the heart, or, you know, you can also look at it in, in the context of, of the brain, as we talked about earlier, and neurodegeneration. And then certainly older in life, you can look at it towards risk factors for degeneration and for things like cancer. So the promise is there. I think that it's very exciting. But uh, typically what happens is people like talk about the promise and then they say, and so therefore take this probiotic to prevent all of that today. It's like, no, 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 let's take a let's take a half step back there. It's like, yeah, that is very exciting, but let's wait for all for all that work to do it. Or explain very specifically how your research program is related to all those different things. So I'm very proud of the research pipeline that we have at SEED because we have a really like gold standard from preclinical and mechanistic discovery all the way through to validation and double-blind controlled trials. We have very robust and quite expensive uh, investments that are made into these programs, but I think it's the type of work that you really have to do to be able to, to integrously start to say, hey, okay, this is something which is a frontier. This is something which is different than what we've done before. And also to acknowledge the limitations. So like, like no, I wouldn't recommend a PDS-08 to prevent acne, for example, because we just don't have any data on that. Like, yeah, there's some data that it supports a, a healthy skin response and eczemic and, uh, and atopic dermatitis, but it's a big stretch to say like, take this so that you you don't develop acne during adolescence. Like, I think like, I, I don't feel comfortable making a statement like that today. So, you know, there's a lot of nuance, I think, in that response, but but I don't want to under undershadow how exciting I think the, the potential of this field really is, but just also uh, encourage patience and, and rigor in, in exploring those those different things. Yeah, so much exciting potential. And as you pointed out, five to 10 years until there's a, a clear picture, right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, some, some things are sooner, some things are later, I think. Uh, but uh, what we're starting to see is that now, at least in our own data sets, we're starting to build and accumulate enough robustness that we can start to do 
real microbiome-based discovery initiatives. That's uh, that's kind of the take-home message. Okay. And before I let you go, what's next for you, Raja? Is there any new research or any updates that you'd like to share? Yeah. So um, we're we're announcing a, a very important new platform sometime this this week. So uh, I estimate that by the by the time that this podcast is out, that would have already been live. It's actually our our first uh, immunology platform where. Um, we're able to screen the effect of a lot of these different things that are in the built environment, things that are used in in infant care, things that are used in food products, emulsifiers, preservatives, personal care products, surfactants, home cleaners, detergents, hair care products, scalp care products, like basically any all of these things that have an in, in, have an, an intersection with are the barriers of our body. We built a whole immunology platform around it with a with a research institute in Switzerland, and so we're announcing that. That collaboration this week, and I uh, I encourage people to follow up and and uh, track that research down if they if they hear this and if they're interested because it's a very um, mindset changing program in terms of like understanding what it actually means to live in in the modern world and in the built environment and think and 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 what truly uh, makes something safe and effective um, across a whole range of different products that we use on a day to day basis. Yeah, I'm very keen to hear more about this. You'll have to keep us updated on that. Of course. Raja Deer, co-founder of Seed, thank you so much for joining me here on the NutraCast. Thank you very much. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutraCast wherever you get your podcast. You can also head to NutraIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutra-related content. Thank you for listening. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutraCast next week. <laughs>